This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by MVP Launch Partners, an amazing product development and consulting firm. I've worked with these guys myself, and I can tell you what sets them apart is that they really partner with you to provide product leadership and advice. They take ownership of building a great product, whether it's a website or a mobile app or a software product. And for a limited time, MVP Launch Partners is offering up to six hours of free consulting for Powder Keg Podcast subscribers. It's an incredible deal. So go to MVPLaunchPartners.com slash Powder Keg to get started. Money is just a tool. Okay, it's used in a toolbox that includes, you know, talent and resources. And if money is a tool that you can find yourself or make yourself, then you don't need to raise it outside. But if, it, if money is a tool that's absolutely crucial to you getting to wherever your end goal is, then capital raising needs to be equally part of your business strategy, just like your product development and marketing is. That's Rachel Qualls, CEO of Venture360 based in Kansas City, Missouri. Her company has a mission to make investing in private companies easy by providing a portfolio management platform that can be used in the screening, closing, and tracking of private investments. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 41 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, a show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators who are building remarkable tech companies in areas that are decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I met Rachel at a Powder Keg pitch night in Kansas City, where she joined us as an entrepreneurial advisor. And I'll tell you what, I was so impressed by her questions and feedback for the founders that pitched on stage that evening. And it's because Rachel knows how to play the great sport of business. She's a total pro. See, Rachel has founded several companies of her own, and you'll hear about some of them in this episode, starting with her eBay business, all the way to the private social network platform for celebrities that she started, raised capital for, and grew in Nashville, Tennessee. She's managed VC funds, started her own angel group called Angel Capital Group, and eventually sold that. Rachel is now running Venture360, which you'll hear more about in this interview. But it's really cool because they've built an affordable system to help everyone find great companies to fund. In this conversation, you're going to hear raw, real insights, including some of the important market forces that are driving innovation and technology-driven companies. We're also going to talk about the often given advice of always be raising. You hear this a lot in the startup world, and what it refers to is always be raising capital as a founder. Rachel's going to talk about what that means and how entrepreneurs can do this while continuing to run their business. We're also going to explore a little bit from the investor side, which is a very valuable context for any investor, founder, or professional working with high-growth tech companies. We even get into the Kansas City tech and startup scene, as well as some of the cool new technologies out there like ICOs, which Rachel and many other entrepreneurs and analysts believe are going to disrupt many industries. There are so many great stories and morsels of helpful information here, so I want to dive right in. Let's set this thing off. Rachel, thank you so much for taking time to join me and share your story today. Where are you calling in from? Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm calling in from Kansas City. Awesome. I was just there earlier this week, and I'm so sorry I missed you. But I did get to connect with your business partner, Chris. Um, awesome, awesome guy. Yeah, he is. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm really eager to talk about Venture360 and everything that you're doing there because it's really exciting how you're helping both entrepreneurs and investors, which uh, we both know is a very inefficient marketplace right now. Um, but first, I kind of wanted to get a little bit more context into your story, because you were on stage at Powder Keg a couple of months ago. You were giving such amazing feedback to the entrepreneurs on stage. And I was like, wow, this person really knows what she's talking about. She's clearly been in the trenches. She's clearly been in sort of that more investor sort of role. Um, so can you take me all the way back? And I mean, like, all the way back. What is your earliest 
entrepreneurial memory. Did, did you, um, did you always kind of think like an entrepreneur or was it something that was learned and you kind of saw around you? I did. I've always really enjoyed creating things out of nothing and then getting people to pay me for them. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think as far as my first entrepreneurial entrepreneurial endeavor was in college. This was back um, when eBay was just getting started and it was kind of a true bidding market. I realized pretty quickly that people would misspell high-end items. So like Louis Vuitton or, you know, all these things again that have had very high secondary market pricing and whatever. And anyway, I would go in and I would bid on these misspelled items and I would buy them much cheaper and then turn around and resell them spelled correctly and priced appropriately. Obviously I didn't make, you know, millions doing that, but I made plenty of money to get through college and it was a lot of fun. It's kind of the random way in which we all start with the entrepreneurial bug, I guess. And then I bought a house when I was really young and I fixed it up and then I rented it out and then I bought another house. And so, so that's, that's kind of how it got started. That's kind of a much bigger level than eBay business, right? Like where you're taking out mortgages, you're taking on some personal debt, um, what were some of the bigger lessons you learned in the early days of that real estate business? Well, I mean, even with the eBay business, I think one of the first things I learned was scale. I didn't have enough sort of money to buy huge amounts of inventory that I could then turn around and resell all by myself. And so you, I started running into these pain points regarding scale and the same thing with the real estate business. You know, I didn't have lots of capital that I could go and invest in lots of properties. So it was just kind of a slow build and each one of my you know subsequent entrepreneurial endeavors has always built off the previous one whether it was the things that I learned the things that I took from that and then it kept getting kind of bigger and bigger and better scale and you know here we are in software and technology many many years later well yeah so it's interesting you mentioned software and technology and capital obviously those two those three things uh, in and of themselves help with the scale piece what are some of the other things that help with scale in the ventures you've been involved with or invested in? The things that help in scale, it just depends so much um, on the business. I mean, if we're just talking about, you know, software and technology, you used to be able to, to a large degree, build software and then it would kind of scale and sell and scale. I don't know that that's truly the case anymore, especially with the software that we develop. There's quite a bit of scale in our business, but it's still, we're changing an industry. So we're changing behavior. And that is still a very hands-on touching approach to getting people to change a behavior and a business process using software. So eventually it'll hit some crescendo of scale. But until then, you know, I think people are really disillusioned with you just build something and then people buy it and you have this tremendous scale. Um, and I think nowadays, again, being truly revolutionary in an industry, it takes a lot of handholding in the very beginning. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The, the handholding piece is a, a good point. As you've kind of leveled up in your business ventures, is there a, a mentor or two that were kind of instrumental in that growth along the way? Yeah, but I don't know that they would know that. So I was never very good about asking for help or asking people to mention me. What I did why, is I- Why was that? I don't know. I guess because when you're younger, or at least when I was younger, I felt like I always had something to prove. And now that I'm older, <laughs> I don't care as much. But um, I think it was more just me trying to work so hard to prove that I was capable of doing the things that I said I was going to do. And so I think my ego got in the way a lot of asking for help. And I think obviously, as I've gotten older, 
and been more successful, now I am much better about asking for help. So the mentors that I had, they wouldn't know it today, but I was, I basically watched the people who had developed success in their lives in the ways that I wanted to emulate, which weren't necessarily just monetary. People who had developed level of success and created good, happy and fulfilling lives. I just tried to, I guess, emulate the life lessons that they projected, I guess. Is there an example you could think of that might better illustrate that sort of approach to mentorship? Yeah, I think that, again, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I always looked at the companies and the leaders whose, you know, whose companies and staff and team members really would follow them anywhere in sort of a loyalty standpoint, and then what drove that. And really, as a leader, it was helping other people reach their potential. And so I've always really tried to implement that into my companies of, I love working in teams. I am the boss and there's never really a question about that, but it's also more about us working as a team and all rising together. And so it's a different sort of approach to, I guess, the hierarchy of companies. That's a good, uh, that's a good lesson. I'm constantly learning that one, uh, the, the right balance between uh, leadership and uh, also learning from the team as you go. In terms of what you're doing to help entrepreneurs, it's something that is obviously near and dear to my heart and to this organization at Powder Keg's heart uh, to you know, you know help entrepreneurs connect with the funding they need to grow and scale. Why was that something that kind of sparked your entrepreneurial interest and said and made you say, you know, really we need to solve this problem, and I think I've got a, a way to do it. Well, the two markets sort of came to a head for me. So like I told you before, my earlier entrepreneur um, endeavors, I really realized that capital to some degree was holding back scale. Mm. So I then started another company that I did raise capital for, and it was wildly painful. How much did you guys raise? We raised just over a million for that venture. Okay. Um, (laughs) It was so painful that I was like, oh, we have to fix this. And this was, you know, a while ago. Did you uh, do that from Kansas City? Oh, no. So at the time, I was living in Nashville. Oh, awesome. Cool and city. It is a cool city. It's a fantastic place to live. Um, Kansas City is home, so I'm also equally excited to be back here. Yes. But yeah, and so I had raised money as an entrepreneur and experienced those pain points. And so in doing that, I was the main reason it's so hard to raise capital is because there aren't that many people investing. So I decided that my next entrepreneurial venture would be to help people get off the sidelines and start investing. So I started um, basically an angel investing service organization. It was called Angel Capital Group that was started in Nashville and it grew to, you know, eight locations across the country. We merged with another firm and then we also ended up managing venture funds. And the whole point of all of that was just to service local community investors, help people get off the sidelines, get access to deals, just start doing deals at whatever, you know, amount was comfortable for them, whether it was putting, you know, $2,000 into a deal or 20,000, really it was just about doing, starting to invest. What was the hardest part about that? Well, I mean, you have to get into the mindset of someone who is really wealthy. So once you've acquired a certain level of wealth, you kind of would like to maintain that. (laughs) (laughs) So your risk profile shifts, you shift from, you know, knowing incomes coming in every year, whatever to, yeah, you have a lot more in a lump sum, but you also want to fiercely protect it. So your risk profile shifts. So just because someone has money doesn't mean that they want to invest it in super high risk startups. They don't. So there's that. So there's the risk involved in, you know, supposedly a lot of these companies fail. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. I was just going to say, and these are people that haven't already invested in startups necessarily. 
Right. I mean, if you look at the market, so, you know, there are eight and a half million or so just accredited investors in the U.S., less than 300,000 people do a deal on average. I mean, it's massively skewed towards um, so many people that have the ability and the wealth to invest in scale, but just don't. My real passion after, you know, all of my other entrepreneurial endeavors was really to help people get access to investing in innovation. One, because it's a tremendous amount of fun. And two, it's the highest performing asset class in history. So you have the potential to make the most amount of money possible and have the most fun doing it. And I felt like everybody should do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, here I was, some little girl who had no business, you know, being in private equity. I didn't have any experience, but I was willing to learn alongside of the really smart, successful people willing to take a chance on me as well. So we built it all together. Like I said, we had many, many venture funds, many angel groups. And from there, the real reason after 10 years of talking to people about investing in you know, early stage companies, the same risk started coming up over and over again. And really the biggest risk factor is lack of liquidity. So it's not whether or not you get your money back, which is one risk profile, but it's how long it takes, which on average is seven to 10 years. So that's the next thing that I set out to solve is how do we provide market liquidity? How do we provide trading so that as you're investing in these earlier stage companies, you have options to get out if you want. So that's really what Venture 360 was started to solve, was to build a market for earlier stage private company stock. That's so cool. And, and obviously, we're going to dive into that uh, a little bit more. But I want to back up a little bit because I'm so curious uh, about the role that you were in there in Nashville running this fund and, and working uh, with other venture funds. How did those conversations go with high net worth individuals who had never invested in startups? Like, how do you open up that conversation to say, hey, you know what? I know you made $10 million selling your dental practice and you're pretty much set living here in Nashville off of $10 million of net worth, uh, but you could really have this money go to work for you. I mean, I'm guessing I'm not doing a great job of pitching it. How did you pitch that to potential investors? Well, we tried to make it easy and fun. Okay, so they didn't need another money manager coming at them for one more thing to do with their money. The other thing that we did, we did is we gave them a menu of options. We said, look, if your thing, and also to preface part of the fun, is that specifically in Nashville, we had our angel meetings out of a really fantastic cigar and scotch club called The Standard. So it was really fun <laughs> to go down to these meetings that we would have and bring these entrepreneurs into pitch. So we tried to create this culture of, hey, I know I'm going to go and listen to some entrepreneurs pitch me, but I'm also going to meet my friends and have some fun doing it. Um, so anyway, back to the menu. So the menu was, look, you can come down to The Standard, you can smoke your cigar, and you can listen to some pitches, and you're going to control who gets your money and, you know, kind of how and when. Or if that's not your thing, you can invest through one of our venture funds. And again, we had many um, different venture funds that they could invest in. And people, if they were interested at all, really fell in one of those two buckets. Like, here's my check, you deal with it, or no, I want to control. Then, you know, and so that seemed to work. Um, for the most part, I think we funded over 65 companies in the short tenure before I sold the company. By the way, I sold Angel Capital Group in 2015. But it worked. And, you know, there were things that I say now, like we had multiple locations. But, you know, you have to understand that this was back in 
2007 to 2010 before we reached any scale whatsoever. And the thought of angel investors investing outside of their backyard was beyond foreign. Like everybody told me that would never work. Everyone said that, you know, investors will never invest outside their backyard, which is just not true. Hmm. People want to make money investing in things that they think are cool and they believe in. It doesn't really matter where they come from. What are the downsides to um, limiting your scope only to your backyard? Just that, limiting in scope. So I always tell people, if I put, you know, Matt, if I put 10 deals in front of you right now, just like you do at Powder Cake, you're going to pick the best one, okay? Because you're going to see 10 and you're really smart and you're going to pick the best one. I you appreciate don't... the faith. <laughs> but you've only seen 10, right? You don't actually know what's being funded. Maybe, you know, if you're in Nashville, you don't know what's being funded on the coasts. You don't know what's coming out of university. You don't know. So you're so limited in your ability to understand the market on a wider scale that you've almost already set yourself up for failure only looking at 10 deals, right? Yep. So that's where it becomes really, really important, I think, for investors to get networked into a group um, or into funds, many, many different funds. It's just the old diversification strategy. You need to see lots of deals and you need to do lots of deals. What other benefits are there to being in a group of other investors? Well, it's a lot more fun. Um, <laughs> and, well, there's the, you know, there's the intellectual stimulation side of it, of sitting around a room and debating you know, really complex, cool technologies with very smart people. And then there are the pitfalls that hopefully you can avoid by talking about how other people have structured deals or the war wounds we all have because you know this company went south and here's why. So it's, you're able to pull from collective knowledge and that benefits everybody. Well, one of the things I've heard you say here is that sitting around a room or drinking scotch or you know a specific venue. I, I know a lot of companies, including Venture 360, are are trying to take this experience online. Are you missing a big piece by not having that physical sitting in the same room together and, and camaraderie that comes with that co-investing? I don't know because I don't know that anyone's figured that out in scale because here's what's, and that's probably what people said about investing in public markets too, right? No one's ever going to invest in a public company unless you've shaken hands with the CEO. And I mean, this is the evolution of all things as you reduce the risk parameters. So just getting people off the sidelines in a comfortable physical environment was a good place to start. Yep. Um, that is not how you scale, you know, the level of diversification you need in this asset class is not going to come from drinking scotch with your buddies. <laughs> it's going to come from online, which is why, again, Angel Cap I sold Angel Capital Group and moved to an online market model. That's where it's going, but there's also something to be said for skating too far ahead of the puck. Um, you know, if in 2007 I had tried to build an online marketplace for buying and selling stock in private early stage companies, no. Like, <laughs> right. So I think you have to meet your market where it is to some extent, and then you also have to build for the future. So it's going to go online. Crowdfunding is going to work. It is working now. Um, and, but people in scale just have to get more comfortable with the risk profiles, again, that go along with investing in private companies. You mentioned crowdfunding. Um, I know there's been a lot of legislation in play. You know, some of it got passed, then some of it wasn't activated. What's the current status? You know, we're talking August 2017 right now. Uh, what's the current status of all of the legislation around crowdfunding and what's to come? Well, I don't know what's to come, just like anybody else. But sure. this is, you know, your average American who has been 
fighting for over a decade now to get capital moving to early stage companies. You know, one, again, 12 years ago when I started all this, I never thought we would see the day where non-accredited investors could invest in these companies. That's a big deal. So it's like we did one step forward with that and then we took two steps back because what the SEC did is they said, great, like we'll make everybody happy and we'll let non-accredited investors invest in these companies, but we're going to make it so hard to offer those securities that no one will want to do it anyway. And so that's, again, is just some average American out here trying to help innovation. That's a very frustrating thing where I think that we're not giving maybe the investors their due in saying that people can appropriately manage their own money. And if they want to go invest it in a lot of startups, I think they should be allowed to do that. Um, so a lot of the legislation that came out really was about, quote unquote, protecting the investor from themselves. But I don't know that that's necessarily warranted. Are there things that we can do as listeners of Powder Keg, as people who care about entrepreneurs with great ideas um, to help support getting better legislation passed? Well, I think the legislation, the JOBS Act itself was phenomenally, I think, well-written and well-positioned. And then when it came down to the execution and the rules, that's where things got a little bit wonky because... Once you start imposing all of the regulations and rules that came out of the SEC, it really made it very, very difficult for the average company to raise funding from non-accredited investors. So how do we fix that? Um, I think it really comes into making a voice heard. That's how the Jobs Act got proposed to begin with. Some very smart people with a lot of political pull started using it in ways that helped. And I think as long as we continue to voice the things that we're doing in you know, a magnified way, people will start listening. And those people would be the SEC. Love it. I hope that that continues to happen because I like the direction it's going. And seeing more more and more money come off the sidelines than ever uh, is definitely encouraging. Uh, and what you're doing right now uh, with Venture360 and what you've done in the past has been a huge, huge part of it. Um, in terms of from the entrepreneurial perspective, how do you how do you take advantage of sort of this shift in uh, in capital because obviously the pain point is still there there's a lot of money on the sidelines but um, there's more and more capital being deployed at the same time you have more and more people getting into entrepreneurship uh, and it's becoming easier and easier to start a company what are some of the other forces that entrepreneurs should be aware of as they consider raising capital oh gosh raising capital you know i would love to tell you that between me and all of the other amazing organizations out there trying to fix it, that we've solved it and made it easier. But um, I don't think to any huge degree of materiality, that's true. I think it's still, again, very hard to raise money just because there aren't that many people investing. And you have sort of a skewed market now that you have even more people starting companies and even more people raising money and not the other side of that, which is the investor side getting more active. Um, that's not has not necessarily been the case. You know, and it is, I guess, easier to start a company. I, I don't know. I started Venture 360 back in 2013, and I don't remember it being any easier. <laughs> I'm saying I did it. But, yeah, I mean, I know that with all the support organizations and things that we do have now, it's a those are tremendous resources in just kind of getting started. I guess I meant more from a standpoint of servers, you know, having servers or hosting is becoming less expensive. It's because of the gig economy. You're not limited just to the talent that's down the street, but you can pull it off you know, literally off of anywhere in the world. Um, and you might be able to access some investors outside of your hometown 
through platforms like Venture 360. That at I, at the same time, sure the the product market fit challenges and traction challenges that any entrepreneur faces are, are definitely still going to be there. The 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 capital piece. How do you know when you should raise capital? Before you need it, which is easier said than done. Yeah. Um, so I am sometimes a fan of just always be raising capital, right? So. People think that, you know, we've raised our million, we're going to close our round, we're going to wait until we get everything just right, we're going to get our revenues up to a certain number so we can justify a certain valuation. It's always the same cycle of when is the right time. You should always be raising capital, I think. So um, let's back up even one more step because maybe I'm considering just bootstrapping the entire thing and and raising money isn't something I want to do. Why should I or shouldn't I raise capital at all? It's so hard to generalize when... I think it just depends on whatever your goal is. What are the tools that you're going to need to reach that goal? Money is just a tool. Okay. It's used in a toolbox that includes, you know, talent and resources. And if money is a tool that you can find yourself or make yourself, then you don't need to raise it outside. Right. Yep. But if, it, if money is a tool that's absolutely crucial to you getting to wherever your end goal is, then capital raising needs to be equally part of your business strategy, just like your product development and marketing is, because it's part of that toolbox. So that's the best I guess I can answer what is a very sort of detailed thing of whether or not you should raise capital or how much and all that. I appreciate you humoring me uh, on that question. It's just a a question I hear a lot, and so I I appreciate you going there with me. Uh, So let's say we've we've decided we're definitely the, the kind of growth company that's going to need the tool of capital to grow and scale. Um, you say always be raising. Uh, what does that mean you know, if, as a CEO of a company? Uh, how do I make sure I'm, quote unquote, always raising? It doesn't mean that you always need to be taking someone's money necessarily because that, can, that involves a level of structuring and detail that needs attention. But yep. one of the things that we developed, so with, especially with Venture 360, is that we offer a tool set to entrepreneurs to organize their capital raising process. One of the tools that I'm a big fan of and that we use personally at Venture 360 is just a place on your website to, it's an invest link, right? It says invest. And when you click on it, in our case, we're not currently raising capital, but this kind of goes to my point of always raising capital is that when you click on the link, investors can register to get information about your next capital raise. Not that big of a deal, but you would be really surprised as to how many investors are already targeting you that you may not know about. Having an ability for them to get access to information through your website, through an invest link, um, and going through, again, all the legal hurdles like you know plugging into a Venture360 platform does, and allowing them to register. This helps you, one, get a feel for the investor market who's looking at possibly investing in you, and then maybe tr- attracting investors that you wouldn't normally think about, like customers. Personally, I think customers make some of the best investors you can ever have. They get your product, they get your market, they understand what you're doing. Um, and so having a place to soft market to customers, like through your website, is an awesome thing and everyone should be doing that. That is a really cool first step. What happens if I put that link on my website and I don't get any leads? Then you're going to have to do the good old-fashioned sales approach, which is <laughs> find you know, find investors who typically invest in companies like yours. Start a prospect list of those investors. How do you Start, do that? Um, you can go through database sites. So I recommend Crunchbase um, or for more money, you could go through something like PitchBook. 
Um, investment dollars in scale typically still are raised from local up, meaning go to your local um, sources of investment. So your local VCs, angel groups, accelerators, they typically have inroads into the larger um, national scale investors. So it still very much starts local and then goes up from there. Okay. So I've got my prospect list of how, how many potential investors should I have in this prospect list? If I'm starting totally cold, you know, I've got the link on my site. If I get a lead, that's awesome. But I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm starting this fundraising process. You know, how many prospects do I need to have in that list before I start whatever the next step is? Well, that's a good question. I mean, even so let's say, you know, you're a software company like Venture360. So you're going to target companies or sorry, investors who typically invest in financial technology services, software as a service at your stage of company, wherever that is, revenue-wise, you're going to develop the list and make sure you're targeting investors who typically invest in companies like yours. Don't waste your time trying to raise a million dollars from an accelerator. Don't waste your time trying to raise a million dollars from you know, a later stage C or D round investor. So target your list. And really, that's a matter of however many investors you can find. And then start you know, sending pitch decks to them, trying to get into the partners and know that they will probably tell you no the first time. And that's fantastic because all you do is put them on some sort of marketing list and then you start to drip to them over time about all of these amazing things that you're doing, all the traction you're getting, and they will track you. It's what investors do. We track prospective companies and then we watch for their performance. So that's kind of how it works on the you, other side of that. You say, um, you said they say no to you, and that's fantastic. That seems like a, a superpower you've developed over time from getting lots of no's. Can you help me understand how an entrepreneur can reframe uh, a no into not right now, but maybe someday? That's every no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not right now, maybe someday. And maybe because I look at business as one big sort of competitive sport, and it's a lot of fun. Okay. And okay. maybe because in my career most of the time I've been told no. So now when I go into things, I'm like, all right, I'm expecting them to say no, but I'm so incredibly okay with that because I know that I'm going to turn it into a yes eventually. So, um, I think it's just, again, that's with anything in life of how you choose to look at the situation. Just know that, you know, most investors at the first time are going to tell you no. That's great because, again, you have a plan to keep touching base with them. It's just no for right now is yeah. all that means. And when you make that ask, uh, I'm guessing you're not just going down your prospect list and sending them an email saying, hey, I'm raising a million dollars. How much do you want to put in? I always use a pitch deck. I do an email. I always attach my pitch deck. I start with friends. Um, hey, I know that you have a lot of contacts with venture capital firms out in your neck of the woods here's my pitch deck. Would you mind just forwarding it? So it always comes from somebody else, which always looks better than coming directly from you. Why is that? Um, I think it goes to show more of credibility in the market mm -hmm. of what, Hey, plus if it's so again, I did this for 10 years on the investor side, but if one of my friends or one of the angels who invested with us sent me a pitch deck, I'm going to review it and get back to that entrepreneur because the relationship I have with that person referring it to me is important instead of some, you know, someone else that I didn't know who just sent me a pitch deck cold, right? Yep. So those are soft ways of making sure that you get the attention that you deserve as an entrepreneur. You deserve to get that investor's attention. You yeah. deserve to hear back from them. It is not okay 
for um, the way that sometimes the venture industry works and just basically ignoring most people. That's not okay. You deserve to get the attention and you deserve to get a response back. So the the response back, um, the initial response back, is that usually a response to would you like a meeting or would you like to talk about investing? And, and that's a yes, no. Is that the ask in the initial uh, exchange? Are you trying to uh, go directly to do you want to invest? Well, I mean, I would think that the typical relationship and dating structure between an entrepreneur and investor <laughs> starts with, you know, here's my pitch deck. So here's my profile. Do you like me enough to get you know, a first date and maybe that's coffee or whatever. So let's meet. And then, so a pitch deck should tell your story enough that the investor is interested in getting a meeting from that meeting. Then there, that's a second degree of now do I actually like this person enough to take them through the due diligence and all the work that I'm going to have to go into actually investing in them. Um, you know, and from that meeting, they're going to go back and talk to whether it's their general partner screening committee, whoever else they need to talk to, and then decide if they're going to take you into due diligence. And that's where things get serious because you need to, it's like the financial equivalent of getting naked. I mean, you're going to have to show <laughs> all of your customers, everyone that you've done business with, all of your financials, all of, you know, everything that you can to justify and validate the investment. I love it. Can you talk to me about, uh, do you, I don't know if you have any data or if you can even give me some of your own anecdotal experience in terms of those initial, hey, uh, for lack of a better word, do you want to swipe right in this dating equation to the, to, you know, have a meeting? How, what percentage of those in your experience, and maybe you even have some data from Venture360 on this, do those outreach, initial outreaches lead to a meeting on the first go round? It'd be a really small percentage okay. that lead to a meeting. I think that, again, it's unfair, but investors see lots and lots and lots of fish checks. So they kind of have um, a sense of who kind of has it together and is ready to go into due diligence and possibly get funding within a few months. You know, I'm still such a huge fan of pitch decks. I, I love getting them and I love looking through them and clicking through them really quickly, especially if they're done well. Just because I genuinely enjoy the story and the entrepreneurial story of others. So pitch decks work. They work really well, um, especially at getting a second meeting if they're done well. What makes a good pitch deck? Telling the story. I always really liked the customer, telling the story of how the customer is going to find you, how and why they're going to buy your product, how much they're going to pay for it, and how many of those customers exist. So just the story of your customer's buying experience is probably the most powerful way of explaining a consumer pain, market size, product market fit, all of that. Is there something in a pitch deck that you see or don't see that will automatically uh, make you disqualify that? I mean, you never want to say things that aren't credible. I think that now most people know these things, but don't ever say you don't have competitors. You do. And if you're not (laughs) aware of them, you're behind the curve. I kind of waffle on both sides of whether or not you should include a competitor matrix. If you're putting in a competitor matrix in your pitch deck, all that's doing is sending investors directly to your competitor websites to see what they're doing, Yep. Um, which may or may not be better than what you're doing. So I don't think ever, I don't think drawing a roadmap to your competitors is ever a good idea, even if you're raising, but again, you can go both sides on that, which is you should know who your competitors are, but you don't necessarily need to draw a map to them. The usual things of a big pie chart of how much you're raising and where it's going to go in 
percentages. Everybody probably does that. You know, I'm raising five million and it's all going to sales and marketing. Don't worry, we're not spending anything on anything else. Um, <laughs> it's just not the way companies are run. So I don't know. I think these days that everyone's kind of following a recipe and so everybody starts to look the same when mm-hmm. you just need to get your unique story out and get it funded that way. Are there particular recipes you've seen out there that are really good that people should go look up? Um, oh, I just, oh no, I can't remember the name. There was just a big blog done of all of the recent pitch decks that got funded and had like Airbnb and Uber's pitch deck and they were really good. And then some of them are really terrible. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, going out and looking at what other companies are doing, you know, the good old adage of pictures, not words always helps. It's mm. always click through pictures. If you're a software company, I want to see screenshots of your software. Awesome. Well, if you think of that, uh, definitely send me the link and we'll put it in the show notes uh, of this episode because that that would be a, a cool one to link to. Um, in terms of the the uh, pitch process, let's say the deck has gotten you the meeting. Uh, how should the entrepreneur prepare for that meeting? Know your metrics. So, you know, this should go without saying, but how many customers do you have? And not just total accounts, like active accounts. How active are your, you know, daily active users? What's your churn rate? So all of these things that go into your success metrics, you really need to know those. You should know them anyway, running your company, but you need to know those. Um, You need to know how much it's currently costing you to acquire customers. So cost of acquisition. Uh, These are things that investors are going to ask and expect you to know off the top of your head in a pitch meeting. What's your take on raising pre-revenue versus waiting till you have those metrics to raise? Well, I mean, I don't think it's, I think that you almost sometimes have to raise pre-revenue because I don't know many people who can just, who have the kind of money it's going to take to start a company um, and then get it to revenue generating. So there's almost always some sort of pre-revenue capital raise, even if it's friends and family. Um, when you get into the revenue metrics, it's sort of a different ballgame because I always say that now you have a stick by which you're going to be measured. So before you're pre-revenue, it's all great because, you know, the sky's the limit. But once you're three years in and now you're supposed to have all this revenue to show for all this potential you had, now you have a stick in the ground and everybody's measuring you one way or the other. Um, so it kind of puts you into a different capital raising market than the pre-revenue stages. What's good about that? Um, the what's good about the revenue side? Or? What what's good about having that measuring stick versus pre uh, revenue when the sky's the limit? Well, also with pre revenue is that you have to raise money. You're not <laughs> making any, so you're probably taking less than ideal deals. I mean, um, so that's unfortunate. The great thing about look if you're running a company your goal should be to make revenue. Um, it shouldn't be to get to the next capital raising rung. Again, it should be a strategy, but your goal as a company is to make revenue. Hmm. Um, and sometimes it seems that that gets skewed these days. But if you're making money as a company, now all of a sudden you don't have to raise money and you have options. And the more options you can give yourself, the better position you're going to be in long term. I like that. I like the idea of keeping options open as you go through this process. Uh, how do you know which 
investor to go with? Let's say you you now have the advantage of having lots of conversations going. Uh, how do you know what the right investor is to, to choose to have um, on your cap table? Well, first of all, let us all be so lucky as to have investors to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just assume someone has said yes and we didn't just take the first you know, check that was presented to us. Sure. Um, I think that that's probably a luxury. Very few of us are afforded, to be honest. Um, but the right investor is going to be the one who is it's a cultural fit. Just, it's just like hiring any other team member. Um, your, those investors become your team members and it's whether or not they're a cultural fit for what you're trying to do. Are they on board for where you're trying to take the company? There's something to be said for smart money, but there's also something to be said for making sure that everybody's sort of rowing towards the same ultimate goal. Otherwise you get this sort of investor tension, you know, along the way, especially as it relates to exits. You know, if that investor thought you were going to sell in year three and you really want to grow it for another seven so you can get a huge multiple, well, you guys are going to start fighting in year three because they went out and you still want to keep running the company. So, you know, choosing the right investor goes into making sure it's a cultural fit like any other team member. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, analogy to make. The, um, the, the platform that you've built to match entrepreneurs with investors, investors with the right uh, opportunities to invest is really exciting to me. And I've really enjoyed digging in a little bit more, obviously hearing your feedback to entrepreneurs, uh, both on the platform and in the powder keg network. Can you talk to me about how that came together in the first year or two, what some of the big, bigger challenges were and what some of the bigger breakthroughs were? Venture 360 state has been and, you know, of all of my entrepreneurial endeavors, this has been the most fun to build, um, mainly because I guess because we know where we're going and the team's been a lot of fun. But what we set out to do is address the issue of liquidity. Um, but what we also realized immediately was that we couldn't build a market. It wasn't going to work. Many other people have tried. It doesn't work in scale. Mm -hmm. And the reason that a market doesn't work for private company stock is because of how those deals are originally executed. So if you look at the venture industry, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars every year that are tracked mostly on Excel. So <laughs> um, while on the company side, we're getting a lot more sophisticated in how we're tracking maybe cap tables, but really all cap tables are is a record of transactions. And so what we entered the market doing is recording the business process and transactions. So the products we have in the market today actually support the venture industry. So we have thousands of clients all over the world that our venture capital firms, angel groups, accelerators, and we help them manage the business process of accepting applications, screening those companies, executing the transactions, and then tracking the performance. So that's what our core products do. And the reason that we did all that is that we knew first that we had to organize, let's say, the buy side before we could start trading. So what our platform actually offers are these private controlled mini markets. So every client on Venture360, whether it's a company or investor, they control their own mini markets. And right now that's the process of buying and executing the transaction. And then we're about to turn on, you know, the sales part of that where you can trade in and out of that stock. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. We're, um, we're actually planning to do that through ICOs or initial coin offerings that will allow companies to be able to tokenize their shares so that they can actually trade um, tokens, but it's what's unique and important noting about venture 360 is that these are privately controlled markets. So the companies control who gets access 
to their platform, who can trade under what terms, which is very, very important because that's where it didn't work for others before. So, Can you talk to me about ICOs and, and what that technology or that um, mechanism is? Oh my gosh, I think it's just the best thing ever. I've been a long-term, long-time investor in Bitcoin, um, which lately has turned out okay. <laughs> um, but I really, really believe in the decentralization of the monetary system. I believe that the cryptocurrencies and things of that nature are some of the coolest things to happen in our society in a long time. But that's, anyway, my personal sort of belief in that. But when it comes to initial coin offerings, when you think of... What, um, what is an know, initial coin offering? How would you define that? Let's think of it in terms that we already know. So if I'm going to go out and raise money, I'm going to sell shares of my company, right? Super easy. That's what's done today. Those shares are either physical certificates or they can be electronic certificates or, oh, by the way, you don't actually have to issue certificates at all. Um, so then it's represented by some ledger somewhere that says who owns what, which is a cap table, right? So somewhere there's a cap table that says I own certain shares of a company. And that's how it works. But instead of shares, we can instead tokenize that. So we could turn that into our own token or coin. So just like a share, but we're going to call it a token. Um, and that's done through blockchain technology, which creates one big sort of master ledger. Okay. And so I'm going to, I'm going to lose everybody right now if I go into any more detail. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that, that's very helpful uh, from, a, from a high level standpoint. It definitely is definitely something that's interesting to me and I've been trying to read up on I appreciate you giving me the the Rachel Qualls version of of ICOs and I'm I'm excited to hear that you guys are going in that direction. That's how we're going to do it. I mean, I think that's the way it's that's the way it, I think it's going to be done in scale. Is you're going to allow companies to create and sell these tokens that are of monetary value, whether it might be ownership in their company or some other way we define it in the future. But again, sticking with what we know today, those tokens would represent ownership. And then you can sell those tokens and people could mine them. And that's how um, I think the companies of the future are going to be capitalized. Cool. Well, uh, you'll have to come back and update us on it when, you, uh, when you've fully launched that, that piece to it. If people wanted to get involved with Venture360, um, can an entrepreneur just go to Venture360 and start using it? Or would they need to be talking to a venture group um, that's already using the software? Yeah, so our company products, although new, they are fully launched and awesome. And companies can go to venture360.com. They can, and again, it's going to be their own private capital raising platform. So we give them lots of tools within their account to connect with investors, to communicate with investors, um, collect interest, execute an electronic closing, manage your cap table, and report back to investors. So everything involved in raising capital in your own private platform. So unlike a public website or a crowdfunding website, this is your own private capital raising platform. So that's what's different about us. Awesome. And if I'm an investor? Same thing. You can go onto our website, um, whether it's tracking your current private portfolio. If you're an individual, you can track your private portfolio. Or if you're um, you know, a venture fund, you can do everything from fund management to portfolio management. Everything involved in back office, we manage. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, before, uh, before we sign off, Rachel, could you give me some context for um, the Nashville tech community versus the Kansas City tech community and um, what you're excited about right now in those markets? 
You know what's so awesome about really a lot of the communities around the country is that they're all pretty similar. And you probably find the same thing, Matt, is that everybody has this awesome sort of bubbling up energy of how can we help support entrepreneurs? How can we get, you know, more people funded? How do we create more success stories? I mean, it's really honestly kind of all the same. Um, Kansas City has tremendous support organizations, especially, especially as it relates to grant funding, whether it's Launch KC or Digital Sandbox. Um, we have state-sponsored programs here in Kansas City that fund alongside of our investor groups. So there's a lot of private and public partnership that goes on in this community that I haven't seen a lot of other places. Um, and so I think it makes it that much easier just to get started. So cool. Well, thank you so much for taking time to call in from Kansas City and share some of your adventure with us, as well as some of the lessons learned along the way. Uh, very excited for what you're doing with Venture 360. And um, if there's anything we can do to help uh, along that journey, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much for taking the time, Rachel. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on today, Matt. You bet. That's it for our interview with Rachel Qualls, but it does not have to be the end of the conversation. Please hit me up on Twitter at Hunkler, that's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R, and let me know what you liked most about this interview and what you'd like to hear more of in future episodes of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an investor, be sure to check out Venture 360's resources at Venture360, that's 360.co, Venture360.co. For more stories on entrepreneurs, leaders, and professionals outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. You'll want to subscribe because we've got some great guests coming up, and I don't want you to miss it. While you're at it, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. This is how we reach new people, and the positive reviews that we've already received have helped us dramatically grow our audience for sharing these entrepreneurial stories. So thank you so much if you're one of those people. Again, that's powderkeg.com slash iTunes if you haven't subscribed or left a review yet. We've got a helpful companion website for you at powderkeg.com where you can find all the show notes there with the links, the contact information, and everything we mentioned in this particular episode. We've also got a helpful companion website at powderkeg.com where you can find all of the show notes for this episode as well as some other useful articles, interviews, and events. Come on out and join us at a Powder Keg Pitch Night where you can connect with other tech entrepreneurs, investors, and professionals just like you. It's a great opportunity to get out from behind your computer screens and learn about the latest companies, innovations, and strategies that are totally disrupting industries and changing the world. We also live stream these events on Facebook at facebook.com slash powderkeg, where we've been getting tons of awesome feedback from you guys, so thank you so much. But I go to a lot of these powder keg events myself, so I'd love to catch you there in person if you can make it. Again, you can learn about all of those events as well as the articles and new episodes of Powder Keg Igniting Startups at powderkeg.com. Until then, I'll connect with you there and I will see you in the next episode.